This is The Future Of, where experts share their vision of the future and how their work is helping shape it for the better. Hello, I'm Jessica Morrison. And I'm Amelia Searson. Today we're talking about gender. In recent years, we've seen an increase in the number of people who identify as gender diverse, with terms like non-binary, genderqueer and gender non-conforming entering everyday language. But how free are we really to be you and me? To discuss this topic with us today is our guest Misty Farquhar, a PhD researcher and academic at the Curtin University Centre for Human Rights Education. Thank you for coming in today, Misty. Thank you for having me. So just to get started, obviously there's been a real shift in the way people refer to their sex and or gender preferences, particularly among younger generations. I think it's fair to say that we're seeing a lot more of that these days. What do you think is the reason for seeing more people express who they really are rather than suppressing it like they may have many years ago? Yeah, I think it really comes down to language, which is quite a simple answer. Um, there's evidence of people being trans and gender diverse across history and across culture. So we know that it's not something new, um, but gender diversity was uh, quashed very much in Western society in particular. Uh, it was seen as deviant and wrong and in many cases an illness of the mind. But we've come a long way in terms of diversity being okay. And, uh, and now because of the internet, there's language available to people, people can find words that actually describe their experience and they can really lean into that. Misty, what's the difference between sex and gender? It might seem like a simple question, but I feel like it's quite central to yeah. this topic. Yep. It's complex because it is so conflated in society, particularly in law. We use those words interchangeably um, often, but in a very rudimentary way, sex is biological. So we're talking about things like chromosomes and hormones and body parts and gender is psychological. So um, that's a bit more of a difficult concept to describe. But the way I usually describe it is if we were all in an episode of Futurama, um, <laughs> 200 years in the future, we're all heads in a jar. We'd still have a sense in our minds of what our gender was, whether that was male, female or non-binary. We'd know without having genitals or a body, we would still know how we identified. That's a, I hadn't thought about it that way, but really good way to put it across, absolutely. Who would have known that Futurama could be <laughs> such a good teaching resource? Um, and like I mentioned before, obviously we've got so many different terms around now that um, people are exploring and, and researching. Understanding these terms like transgender, agender, bigender, genderqueer, non-binary, gender non-conforming, cisgender, can you tell me about them? <laughs> That was a very comprehensive list. Um, it, so cisgender, let's start with that. Mm. Cisgender is to transgender what straight is to gay, lesbian, bisexual. So it's basically saying this is a person who has female written on their birth certificate and grows up to identify as a woman. So um, that's cisgender. And the reason we have that language is because we would otherwise say there are transgender people and there are normal people. And so that's quite problematic. Yeah. Uh, so cisgender is the language we use for people who are identifying with the gender assigned at birth. Transgender is the opposite of that. So a person who has female on their birth certificate grows up to identify as a man or as a non-binary person. And all of those other labels that you used can be thought of as fitting beneath that umbrella of transgender. 
Um, but a lot of the labels that you suggested were non-binary genders. So by that we mean people who don't identify as a man or a woman, some or all of the time. Myself, for example, I identify as agender. It's the best word to describe my gender. And that is, I don't feel like I need gender for my sense of self. Uh, some people might identify as both man or, and woman at different times or at the same time. And there's lots of different ways of being non-binary, which is why there's lots of different labels. As you just said before, I think you touched on the language component. Mm. Can we talk a little bit more about the use and importance of language and pronouns? Has, has language created this space for people to understand and describe their gender more? Yeah, so there's a myriad of labels, as we just talked yeah. about, uh, and people are becoming more used to using different kinds of pronouns, or at least, ideally, they've become more used to not making assumptions about a person's gender based on the way they look. So someone who looks to you like a woman may not feel like a woman. They may use he, him pronouns or they, them pronouns. So it's really it's really that, that there seems to be a lot more acceptance of that, at least in my little bubble, which is a start. Um, yeah, sorry, what was the other part of the question? I suppose you've also touched on it there as well. I mean, obviously, language is important. You've, you've said that. But is intention more important? So, for example, for someone who might not be well-versed or, you know, um, have personal experience in this space, they may have the good intention of wanting to refer to someone as their preferred pronoun, but they may stumble because to them, they may see that person and see that they look like a female, but that isn't their preferred pronoun. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because, you know, you know, for myself, for example, I would hate to um, offend someone. It just may be a slip of the tongue and not referring to them as their proper pronoun. And I don't want to cause any offence or, or harm to them. Mm. And I think largely that's where people are coming yeah. from. I think largely people don't want to offend people yeah. and they don't want people to be upset by something that they've said. Of course. And most trans and gender diverse people will take it that way. Okay. So they, they will, and I will do this myself, um, we will correct people and just say, oh, I use they, them pronouns actually, yeah. without getting angry about it or because it happens a lot. Like people are still getting used to the idea of using different pronouns. Um, one of the things that a lot of people are doing now, particularly in workplaces, is wearing, I don't have mine on now, but wearing pronoun pins that say they, them, or she, her, or he, him. Email signatures too. I've Email signatures, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's important even for cisgender people to do because it creates a space of safety mm. for people who aren't using pronouns that people would expect. So I think that's a really good way of, of making sure that you don't forget. You can just check someone's badge or emails and, and there it is. Mm. I've definitely noticed, sorry Jess, no, no. I've definitely noticed um, like on Twitter and people's Instagram bios, friends that I have who are cisgender, they put their she, her pronouns in. And as you say, that definitely creates that safe space, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it indicates that you have learnt something about pronouns and that you're trying at the very least yeah. to, to be better at that. How, what's the time frame been that you've noticed um, where this has become a little bit more used more commonly in, say, for workplaces? Does that make sense? Yeah, I probably would say within the last five maybe seven years, yep. people have started to take more of an interest in gender diversity generally. Sure. Uh, and a lot of that is around, I, I hate to say this, but marriage equality was actually really helpful in, in forwarding the movement for trans and gender diverse people because 
I guess, gay, lesbian, bisexual folk uh, really, whilst not equal, have a lot of equality in our society now, whereas trans and gender diverse people, the you know, health outcomes are appalling. Um, equality within the workplace in, in education is still really bad. So I guess people have kind of shifted the focus a little bit to, you know, what's going on for trans and gender diverse folk. And so with that, I guess there's been sort of an increase in... Um, groundswell, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So people in their workplaces are more interested in um, getting training, for example. I mean, this week with Trans Folk of WA, I'm, I'm training in two different workplaces, um, Transgender 101 training. So people are really, really looking for that now. Mm. Do you think also, we're probably a little controversial to touch on it, but I'm just thinking of a case we had earlier this year in Western Australia with our uh, Lord Mayor, newly elected Lord Mayor, making a comment in this space and then he committed to having um, training done at um, Perth City Council. Do you think it's cases like that, which were obviously horrible at the time for, for those people who were offended by that and it, I think it really did bring it to the public light. Do you think that those things sort of spur on, for example, you've said you've got two lots of training to, to partake in this year, uh, sorry, this week at different workplaces? Yeah, and um, all credit to the City of Perth, mm -hmm. they have always been very supportive of the LGBTIQA plus community. And uh, this was, from my perspective, really out of character for mm. the city of Perth as an organisation. Sure. And obviously, um, Basil is his own person and can say and do whatever he wants. But um, this is not, I don't think it's a reflection of the city of Perth. What I can say is that we actually had training booked at the city of Perth, but then we went into lockdown. So, uh -huh. um, yeah. so that commitment has actually been honoured. And I, yeah. I genuinely think through conversations with various trans and gender diverse people that he's also learning. Learned. And I actually follow him on, on social media and I have, I've seen that. Yeah. Um, so it is great to see. I suppose it's you know um, unfortunate things like that to happen but it kind of brings it into the, the public's, it was in the news and it became a topic of conversation. Yeah. Mm. And so I, I guess the thing to note about that is that that was really painful for trans and gender yeah. diverse people. And it meant that people working in the right space for, for trans and gender diverse people were flat out for you know a couple of weeks trying to do damage control around this, yeah. not just in the media, but also with their peers, making sure that everyone was okay. And so it's, it's awful, but it is a really good learning experience for people who aren't trans and gender diverse. There just really needs to be a better way of doing that. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, getting those conversations started is really what we need, isn't it? And that sort of links into the next question pretty well. What is the level of awareness in Australia around supporting those who identify as gender diverse, do you think? Um, Australia is, is a more diverse place than we like to think. So there are definitely places where trans and gender diverse people don't have an easy ride, but it's much easier to be who they are. Places like Victoria, for example, where they have a commissioner for um, sexuality and gender in comparison to somewhere like Western Australia where there's no minister, there's no funding, um, there's, there's, there's really just grassroots work. So I, I think that the awareness is increasing, but it's nowhere near what it needs to be. What are some of the issues facing people who identify as trans and gender diverse in Australia? The biggest issue from my perspective is health related, mental health related in particular. 
there's a lot of research recently that shows inordinate amounts of suicidality amongst trans and gender diverse people, depression, anxiety. And this is not because we're inherently unwell. It's, it's because of stigma and discrimination in society. It's because of not being able to access services in a way that affirms who we are. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that is a really big problem and there needs to be a lot of money poured into that in, in the same way as we would pour money into any group that is disproportionately affected with mental health issues. Uh, from, from my perspective, that's one of the biggest things. Access to medical care is, is not great. Uh, you know, even simple things like being misgendered or in hospital settings, being put into wards that don't necessarily fit a person's gender identity, using their legal name rather than their preferred name, that kind of thing. And the other issue is legal recognition. So in Tasmania and Victoria, now there's been birth certificate reform, which this is state law, so it has to happen by state. Uh, it allows trans and gender diverse people to have the gender that they want on their birth certificate as opposed to the one that was assigned at birth. And that includes non-binary people, which is incredible. There's never been an option for non-binary on birth certificates. We don't have that in Western Australia. So if you're non-binary, you don't get to have the gender you prefer on, on your birth certificate. Um, but there is movement towards changing those rules. I think ideally, uh, if we're talking about the future of birth certificates, we would not have gender on our birth certificates. It's not actually important. It's, it would be the same as having religion or race on our birth certificates, which is no longer on birth certificates because it's not relevant. I hadn't thought about it that way. No, that's really mm. interesting. Mm -hmm. So Misty, gender reveals. They're everywhere, it seems. <laughs> they get crazier and crazier. Um, can you tell us about them? You know, how, how, did, how did they begin? And do you think that we will see a shift away from them? Didn't one of these cause a fire? Yes, I, <laughs> yes. yes. literally. In and the middle a of massive, a pandemic. A massive fire, yes. That's right. Mm. That's right. Does something to do with a car crazy. exhaust or something? They made it come out yeah. blue. Or, uh -huh. Do you remember seeing that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, from my perspective, I think gender reveals are really weird. Like, why are we so concerned with the genitals of a baby? Um, are we, you know, is it just about communicating privilege? So are we saying this child is going to do better in life because it has a penis? Um, I'm, I'm not sure what the sudden fascination seems to be with these events. I, I don't remember it being a thing a couple of years ago. So it seems quite new. I don't know where it came from actually. Mm. Any excuse for a party, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Why do we need an excuse for a party? Yeah, I don't, I had heard that the person who came up with it though was kind of trying to get people to move away from it now. Um, so I hope, I hope that this doesn't continue. Talking of, we've obviously talked about gender reveals and it sort of comes into this a little. Transitioning between genders and the right age to transition. I caught a part of a Louis Thoreau's transgender kids documentary on the weekend and he visited a child who was beginning to transition at the age of five years old. To me as a parent, I was, I suppose, a little shocked seeing that because that's only four years away for me with, with my child. So I just, you know, I suppose putting myself in that, those parents' shoes. Is there a right age? to transition or is this a loaded question? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess we, we need to understand the nature of transition first. Yes. Um, so perhaps I could start with that. Of course, so, of course. So transition um, 
most people when they think of transition they think of medical transition so surgeries and hormones yeah. which is part of transition for some people but not for everyone so there's also the legal transition which is changing birth certificates and names and that kind of thing and there's social transition so that is changing your name changing the way you do your hair or, or the way you dress um, and often that social transition is the most important part so when we're talking about young people, typically what a transition would look like would be that social transition and puberty blockers, which are reversible. All puberty blockers do is stop the process of going through puberty. So it stops that increase in male hormones or female hormones or, or whatever, so that the child can, when they come of age, make a decision to either go on to hormones or, or not, and whether or not they want to have surgeries later on. So it, it just stops that process from occurring so that it's easier. So particularly for um, trans women, testosterone is a very, very strong hormone. And so once that's in the system, it's really difficult to reverse that. So it makes that process later on easier for young people. I suppose in terms of the right age to transition, is it essentially a case by case? <laughs> basis there really is no right age is there yeah I mean it's you know many people have a sense of their gender very early on mm -hmm. you know cisgender people will talk about you know knowing that they were a girl or a boy at two or three years old and it's no different for trans and gender diverse people they they know and it can actually cause quite a lot of distress for for young children when they can't be affirmed in that gender mm. and since it is a case-by-case -case approach that we should be taking how do you think that would fit in with like law when it needs when it's written up you know it needs to be more specific do you think it should the language should be more ambiguous or um yeah what are your thoughts on that there's there's no there's nothing illegal about social transition so social transition can it's up to the parents and the child really in terms of um, legalities and accessing puberty blockers etc typically what happens in law is they say under the age of 12. So from the age of 12, things change, but under the age of 12, there's very strict rules. And I'm not fully across the specifics of those rules, but that, that is a way of keeping it broad. And Misty, non-gendered language in clinical settings has been a huge topic in the news lately. What is the impact of using words like chest feeding and gestational parent? Yeah, I haven't... Um, come across that in the news. So that's really interesting to me. And I think that's fantastic. It, I think that wherever possible, we should be using gender neutral language. And I, in, in training sessions, I encourage people to use they, them pronouns, for example, until they know otherwise. So um, you never know what a person's gender is. So you would always use they, them pronouns unless someone told you differently. So I think clinical settings too, I think you know, there are definitely times when medical professionals would need to know about a person's genitals um, or perhaps about their hormones, but all other circumstances, it really isn't relevant. Because mm. as you say, there's that distinct difference between sex and gender, and we need to focus in a clinical setting on the sex rather yeah. than, than the gender. Is that what you mean, sort of? Yeah, yeah. If, it's, if it's relevant. Mm. Even, you know, sex isn't always relevant either. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Just following on from that, something else that's been in the, I'll call it the mainstream media, gender critical feminists and transgender rights. Um, JK Rowling of Harry Potter fame was quite um, 
wasn't divisive. She was quite controversial, her tweets at the time around the protection of women-only spaces. And can you go a little more into that? Obviously, it, um, it generated a lot of conversation online at the time. Mm. Yeah, and JK Rowling's not the first mm. um, to make those kinds of comments. There are a lot of people who seem on the surface to be really good feminists who are not trans feminists. So they are TERF, which is trans exclusionary radical feminist. Okay. Uh, so people like Jermaine Greer, for example, is considered to be a TERF. Um, and that is, you know, people who have a platform around speaking, speaking on behalf of women, mm -hmm. saying that transgender women are not actually women. So they basically talk about transgender women as men. And I, I, I don't really understand where that comes from. It, it, for me, if a person says that they're a woman, they're a woman. And transgender women might have slightly different experiences to cisgender women, but they certainly have experienced a lot of oppression and in some ways more oppression than cisgender women. Because they're marginalised. Yeah. Yeah. And they've had to live much of their life often as something that they're not. Just to finish up, Misty, what do you think the future of gender diversity is? Can we expect to see more people identify as gender diverse in the future? We have touched on this throughout the podcast, but what's your take on it? I just personally, I think gender is dumb and it's, it's, time, it's, it's, time, it's time to do away with gender. It, you know, at one point was important because gender roles were important because women were oppressed, uh, but it's, it's becoming less and less important in society. And young people are really embracing that. For There was a recent article actually, which said, I think it was like half of young people don't identify as a man or a woman or, or male or female. So young people are really in particular embracing this. It's a combination, I think, of the increase in awareness around gender diversity, the increase in language that's able to be used. It's just, it's almost a non-issue for young people. And I think hopefully in my lifetime, there'll be a time where we're not so obsessed with, you know, what's in people's pants. Good way to finish it. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think you're right. As you said, it's awareness and with time, I think you've seen things change just in the last five years. So hopefully we'll continue to see more change. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming in today, Misty. That's all we have time for today. Uh, where can people connect with you? Uh, people can connect with me online, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. My handle is Misty Glow on all of those. Um, and if you're interested in my dogs, you can also follow me on Instagram. Fabulous. <laughs> we'll be sure to add your details into the show notes along with our email if anyone would like to reach out. Thank you, Misty, for coming in today and sharing your knowledge on this topic. Thank you. You've been listening to The Future Of, the podcast powered by Curtin University. Leave us a comment wherever you find this episode. We'd love to hear from you. And if you've got something out of today's episode, please rate us. Bye for now. See you next time.